Welcome to Manufacturing Matters, a podcast sponsored by Simsbury Bank. Hi, my name is Martin Geitz. I'm president and CEO of Simsbury Bank, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the next edition of our Manufacturing Matters podcast. Today's episode is focusing on transition and succession planning for the next generation. This is actually our second episode because we found so much great commentary the first time around. It's a common misconception that the U.S. economy is dominated by large corporations when, in fact, small businesses, companies that employ fewer than 500 employees, make up over 99% of U.S. companies and almost 50% of the workforce. Companies with fewer than 20 employees have experienced the largest employment gains in recent years, adding over 1.1 million jobs annually. Connecticut is right in line with these national statistics. Over 99% of Connecticut businesses are small businesses, and almost 50% of Connecticut's workforce is employed by small businesses. And that's more than 735,000 workers in our state. Privately owned family businesses account for actually 64% of GDP in the country. Uh, But only 40% of those businesses have a succession plan and only 30% of family businesses get to the second generation. Only 12% of family businesses get from the second generation to the third generation. I'm joined today by Capri Frank, who is president of Miller Foods and Oma's Pride, a third generation family business. Lou George, an attorney and founding partner of the firm Hassett & George PC. Pam Butterfield, founder and president of Business Success Tools. She's an advisor to business owners and leaders on creating organizational strength and long-term success. And Sal Giuliano, the managing partner of the accounting firm Gitlin, Campisi, and Pendergast. Welcome, everyone. Pam, maybe you could uh, start us off with what's the right time to begin to think about transition of a business? When thinking about the right time to transition a business, if you wait till there's a problem or or a challenge, it's too late. There's the financial aspects. Obviously, you want the business to be financially healthy and and have legs for continued uh, financial health for both the buyer or the person you're transitioning to and and the current owners. But having said that, there's also personal priorities that matter when you're transitioning a business. Life can present an owner with unanticipated health or family challenges. The owner might have the need for to do something new and different. So you might go into it and then not want to hold on to it forever, maybe the way the previous generation did. Some people are just tired and burned out and frustrated, and they don't want to do things anymore. And so all of these personal issues often act as a catalyst for transitioning a business. And ideally, having both that personal strategic plan as well as the the business plan three, five, ten years out can be beneficial. So that planning piece is very important. Sal, what are some of the options uh, for a business owner to think about in transitioning their business? So transitioning out of the business, there's a number of options. Um, First option, if it's a family-owned business, there's always the next generation. Extremely important to have a, a transition plan in place to help with that plan. You can transfer out by transferring ownership to employees. You have some key employees. They can become owners, one owner, two owners. Um, If you have partners, you could transition out by selling out your share of the uh, business to partners or other shareholders. Um, Another option 
is uh, to sell your company to something called an employee stock ownership plan, also known as an ESOP. The way ESOP works is the company sets up an independent trust, which is essentially a qualified benefit plan designed to invest primarily in the stock of the company. And the trust holds the stock for the employees, and as long as the employee works for the company, he's an owner of the company, and then when he retires or leaves the company, the company buys back the stock, or the trust buys back the stock at fair market value. A more obvious way to transfer out is just to sell out the company to an outside party. There are a number of consolidators and uh, venture people looking for a manufacturing business, for example, to buy. And then finally, the worst option is, of course, closing the doors because you didn't have a succession plan or transition plan. And I've seen that happen a number of times. Uh, so, you know, that's usually because of poor succession planning and uh, a number of years of declining profits. And the value then is pretty close to zero, if nothing. Lou, uh, how do you build a team of people to help you assess the different options? And really, how do you build trust th that they have your interests at heart in coming up with different ideas for you? Well, we, we talk about a succession plan, but really when you're putting your team together, you're really starting that as you're normally progressing year to year in your business. Uh, the, the team that's going to be assisting you in uh, a transition are a lot of the same players and professionals that uh, business owners rely upon year to year. For example, uh, your accountant is going to take a, an important role in a transition plan. Your lawyer, uh, your wealth manager, personal and business-wise. Um, and you're going to need one additional professional that probably you don't really look to in your annual review of your business, and that's a business evaluation. You're going to want an expert who can evaluate the value of your business so that whether it's a generational change, whether it's a sale, both sides are going to have a comfort level with the value of the business. And that's ultimately uh, what makes for a smooth transition when both sides, whether they be family members, whether it be third parties coming in to buy it, is having uh, a comfort level with, with the value because it always comes down uh, to that. And the business valuator helps and assists the lawyers and the accountants and the wealth managers plan uh, that transition. But you build that team. And you build the trust over time and various referrals from professionals to the business owner help, but the business owner needs to have some working relationship with these people along the way to allow that to occur. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're in business and you've built a team of advisors who you trust. And so it's a natural transition to the conversations around what's the next step. Why don't we spend a little more time digging deeper into the scenario of selling your business? First of all, uh, Sal, how do buyers and sellers find each other? There's a number of ways they find each other. Professionals sometimes help the, the owner of a business find a buyer. For example, an accountant might know somebody who's looking to sell their business or buy a business. Uh, attorneys, perhaps the banker. Banker, you know, has a client that was told that they want to sell their business. So to lose point, talk to the professionals. That's the, probably the first step. There's business brokers out there. That's very common. The brokers are specific in trying to find either a buyer or a seller for whoever engages them. And of course, there's different approaches. You have to make sure that their method of 
selling a business, confidentiality, all that kind of stuff is important. And sometimes your competitors could be a good way to find a potential buyer or seller. People can call up their competitor and say, hey, look, down the road, I'm thinking I'd like to buy your company. So before you talk to anybody, perhaps you and I can have a conversation if you're ever interested in selling. That's happened a number of times with some of our clients. And sometimes some of your employees might be interested in, in buying your business. And you know it. And you're transitioning in succession. So that might be a ready buyer for you. One unique way that I uh, witnessed probably uh, three months ago or so was uh, at an event, a networking event, where someone, as they're introducing themselves around the room, was at the event specifically looking to buy a manufacturing business and said, I'm in this area. This is who I am. This is what I do. If any of you know uh, of anyone selling a business in this particular area, he, he was very focused on what he was looking for and was going around in that regard and doing that. And I think he ultimately found one. Amazing. Uh, interesting. Just being candid can often help you in taking the next step. But continuing on, Lou, you know, what should sellers look for in an outside buyer? And, and what should sellers be careful of when looking at potential buyers? The sellers are, are looking for the cleanest, most efficient deal that's going to be the surest thing to get to the end. So when someone has made the decision to sell, and if they're looking to sell to a third party, in their mind, mentally, they've committed to doing it. So now they want to move through that process and get it done. And, and uh, you want a, a buyer that presents the cleanest possible deal which could be cash versus financing. It could be the minimal contingencies within the deal. Uh, some buyers come with a whole laundry list of, of contingencies and timetables. So when sellers are, are truly committed to selling, they're looking for that cleanest uh, deal uh, that they can have. Buyers, buyers are looking for a rate of return. Uh, they're buying for a particular reason. And then the other part on the seller side that is a non-economic uh, issue is who is taking over the business that they built and uh, are they going to continue the same culture? Are they going to get rid of a number of employees that have been there a long time because they're trying to cut back on expenses, trying to fix the bottom line? So that cultural issue is something that sellers look to as well. And there's also another factor to that, too, is the actual the terms of the deal. So oftentimes, from the tax point of view, the way you structure the deal can have an implication. So if the seller wants to do the cleanest deal, he might say, I just want you to sell, buy my stock. The buyer, on the other hand, says, well, um, no, I really want to buy your assets for different reasons, right? For liability reasons, for tax purposes, he wants to be able to deduct the assets. So those are all factors that once you decide to sell, is a key component of how the deal is going to be structured. So there might be a buyer who doesn't want to buy the stock. So he might be willing to pay your price, but when you do the tax calculations, you come to realize I'm only going to take home 60% of everything I sell. So those are factors that also come into play. And I've seen several situations where you'll have CPAs, attorneys, business brokers sitting around a table saying, wow, this is a great deal clean deal for the seller. It's got to go through. You know, the finances are just perfect. But then for some reason, the owner drags his or her feet and ultimately the deal doesn't happen. 
And when you look at the owner who's saying, oh, yeah, I want the steel to go through, what's really happening is they're still so engrossed in their business and they haven't stopped to think about their life post-sale or they're worried about those two key employees that have been with them for 30 years and now they make over $100,000 and and you have to keep them if the sale's going to go through. And now, now all of a sudden the, the buyer has, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in, in employee expenses. And when you look at what those people are really doing, they're probably doing something that would be a $60,000 job out in the marketplace. And the buyer just doesn't want to absorb that. Are there ways, Pam, that you've seen sellers prepare themselves so that they don't get bogged down in the kind of uh, emotional issues that you were just citing? Well, there's a couple of things that when I see someone in that quandary, very often they need a safe, confidential place to work through what the issues are, whether it's a, a coach or an advisor. It could be a trusted CPA or an attorney. And there's that idea, there's the emotional piece of it. And people usually need a little bit of time to work through that. And then there also are some legal things and that, that you can do to protect some of the people. But it's something that it takes a while for somebody to work through. And unless they have that personal plan for what they're going to do with the rest of their lives after they've been buried in their company, it can be a real deal killer. So one final question while we're uh, talking about selling your company, the costs of selling your company. Sal, are there things that we haven't touched on that someone selling their company should be thinking about as they get into this process? Well, I think we mentioned earlier that you should get evaluation. There might be costs associated with cross-purchase agreements, buy-sell agreements with partners, broker fees uh, come into play. So there's a variety of different expenses. You might need to um, hire some additional employees so that you have a good, solid management staff. And so you might need to invest in some key employees to help with the transition so it makes your company more attractive. So yes, there's some hidden expenses that you don't think about. Yeah, good to know. Why don't we shift gears here and talk a little bit about a family business that has a next generation that is interested in taking over the company. According to data gathered by SCORE, 47% of family business owners expecting to retire in the next five years still haven't identified a succession plan. So this is an important thing to think about for family businesses where there is uh, a next generation that would like to take over the business. Pam, how do generations work together to come to an agreement that's a win-win for both parties or all parties if there are three generations, given their differing needs and expectations? Well, transitioning a, a family business has some unique challenges. And the three challenges that seem to crop up most often are that issue of fairness. Uh, we have some members of the next generation that will be able to take over and run the company. Um, and then there's family members that just either don't want to or they're not capable. So there's that fairness issue that comes to play. Um, and as part of that, you know, can my children earn the respect of key employees? Because when you start bringing in the next generation, key employees get very nervous and it can bring a, about jealousy and discord and all of those things. Um, so that's one of the things that you have to look out for. A second thing that causes uh, a special challenge for family-owned businesses is that the senior generation doesn't want to lose control and needs time to become uh, comfortable with the transition. 
So they might feel they're being pushed out. They might feel the younger generation isn't quite ready yet. And so again, to have those conversations and come up with a timeline for when certain things need to be in place so that the senior generation is comfortable with the younger generation taking over. That's a key thing. And and as part of that, for the senior generation to start looking at what are they going to do after they're no longer running the company to avoid the temptation of interfering. And then the third thing that tends to be very common, especially these days, is the next generation can't financially purchase the business. And if I've got my total net worth in the business and the people I'm leaving the business to can't afford to purchase it, I'm not going to feel comfortable leaving it. And so those are the kinds of things that need to be worked out ahead of time. Capri, you lead a third generation business. So your family has lived through this on a couple of occasions. Can you give your perspectives on this? Sure. So Pam uh, speaks to a lot of good points. And we have a third generation owned family business and fourth generation working in the family business. And um, we, one of our key employees now is a fourth generation, and he happens to be my son, but he's working to build a very important part of our business. He's very key to the growth of what we're doing right now. So I think that in terms of working together in the generations, I've always been able to bridge the gaps between one generation to the next. My cousin's 20 years younger than I am, and my aunt is 16 years older than I am. So I think that um, that's been helpful with a new uh, transfer recently with my mother retiring. And I was fortunate to be able to create a plan financially at this point in our company where I was able to do a purchase of her stock. I would say that one of the topics that we've been talking about is evaluations and fairness and all of that. And it's important to get these topics out there on the table. And what's happened sometimes is that when you're actively working day to day, these aren't things that you generally talk about in small business. And if it comes up once a year at a board meeting, it's not enough. So setting the time aside and the resources, because when you financially, uh, when you recognize that you need to put some serious financial resources into this, you might be unprepared for that. So I would say that in terms of being an insider on this, with the recent transition, we were successful and we are going to be successful in creating a new transition or succession plan or potential sale. And I think it's important to open up those conversations, even though they're highly uncomfortable conversations among generations. Because what one generation might want to see is very different from what the next generation might want to see. But as Pam said, when your net worth is all tied up into this, you want to make sure that this generation is prepared. So clearly you've touched on communication being an important part of having a good transition discussion within the family. Are there other things that families can do to put a little more structure or formality around the transition discussion? They can, and that's to create the team. So that just keeps coming up as an ongoing topic here this morning. And I think it's important to recognize that you do have to create uh, a team of people around you that everyone feels comfortable with. So it's, sometimes it takes a while to find that, those people. You know, you might have a, an accountant that's been working with you for quite some time, but some family members might not feel comfortable for some reason 
with that person or what their role is. So you you have to take the additional steps to make sure that the team is in place. So when there is something, you don't want to have anything catastrophic come up. You know, my grandparents died suddenly one after another. And it really, we were very lucky and fortunate that my mom and aunt and uncle who was working in the business were able to continue to operate the business, but uh, they struggled. And we don't want to see that happen. There's no reason if you create a good team around you that if something were to happen or you want to make a, a change, that you're prepared. So I would say in terms of being more formal, it's having more in writing, more agreements, more uh, conversations surrounding these topics so that people are on the same page so that when there is a time, you don't have to go back to the drawing board. You want to have it you know, up front. And one of the things that come up in family businesses, which is unique, is that uh, there may be family members that would like to be in certain roles that honestly don't have the skill sets or family members that do have the skill set that don't want to come into the family business, which is another piece. So then you have to look for outside people. And sometimes key outside people are difficult to find. And not that the people might be hard to find the talent. It's just how do they work within your business? And Capri, you had said that, I think this is very important, that you actually set aside time for it. I like to see either a monthly meeting or every other month, at least two hours where the topic is, now we're going to look at succession and transition. Absolutely. In our company, that's what we're doing right now. And I highly recommend it to those out there that have not taken the time. And it is, it's just being proactive. You know, this is one of those things in life you definitely don't want to be reactive about. You want to have those things in place. And it takes time. And uh, being on the same page, and we talk about the team, but what gets lost a lot of times uh, are the professionals, advisors, not getting together to discuss the particular business and the various factors of that business. So you may have a uh, business owner, and they will have an accountant. They will have a lawyer, they will have a wealth manager, and the business owner is the quarterback for each of them, but they never get together. And we've recommended, uh, and some take the advice, some don't, but a yearly or year and a half, two years, the accountant, the lawyer, the wealth manager get together to discuss uh, where the business is going so everybody's on the same page. Uh, Sal and I could have a mutual client, and if we never speak, Sal, from the accounting perspective, would be providing great advice. And uh, myself, from the legal perspective, the, the planning perspective, could be providing advice, but they may, not, they may conflict. It's good advice, but we've never discussed it together. So part of being on the same page is having those advisors uh, communicate on a fairly regular basis. You do need to have someone in your family business assigned to that role. So you have to assign that role, number one, so that person can create, right, that environment. So it's someone actually actively working on it. I've had a couple of people approach me about being a quarterback for us. And I think it's a common theme right now that people are talking about. And what is that environment? What does that look like? How do they get compensated? How would a quarterback get compensated, right? So if you're the quarterback of your family business, it's just part of your every day. But if you're going to assign a quarterback, right, to, to that position or a coach to that position, there has to be some level of compensation. That's another topic 
that that could be talked about. But it's it's interesting. Two people recently both approached me, sat down with me, literally had a plan in place. I was like, this is impressive. This is great. And I think it's a missing link that's happened along the way. And I think you're right. And what happens is you're giving good advice. You know, a lawyer could give good advice and a business advisor could give good advice. You could have two great, um, you know, people working independently. And then you discover when you really go to make a deal or you go to make a decision about a buy-sell or you go to make a decision about a, a transfer of stock. Well, wait a minute. You can only transfer X amount of stock. There's, there's a lot of details that go into it that you don't necessarily recognize. It can be overwhelming. So if you can have a really good um, quarterback in there or a good coach, whatever that role is or the family member that chooses to be that person, it's absolutely beneficial. There's clearly a lot of work that takes place in having an effective succession or transition plan. Capri, though, is it all worth it? What are some happy ending experiences that your family has had by taking a really thoughtful approach to succession and, and to transition? Yeah, happy endings are always great. We want to hear about those, right? What happens is you really don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I'm happy to say that our third generation family business in terms of ownership has transferred. And it's pretty exciting. There's a legacy. In our case, we had it started with chickens and eggs and turkeys, you know, and now we're a global company. I still consider it a very small family business just because it feels very small and we operate in a small area. But we do a lot. And it's very good to know that our family is unified in a sense that we want to create a legacy and carry on a legacy. And there's something about that. You want to make a mark in, in your world. The statistics show you that transitioning to a fourth generation is the, the numbers are extremely low. It's close to 4%. So that would be quite an accomplishment. So I think that from my perspective, I'd like to be able to see that we have a lot in place to make sure that happens. And ultimately, things do change. You know, generations have different ideas. So you have to make sure that what may be a transition in your mind may actually um, be a sale, uh, which is another type of transition. So it can transition to generations or it can transition into other hands. So I think it's important to keep those options on the table. The exercise of, of developing the succession plan will ultimately lead to the result, and it may not be the result that people originally started when they were looking at the succession plan. So they may be looking at, oh, we're going to pass this on to family members. And as the process occurs, as the meetings occur, the finances, everyone in the family realizes that it may not um, be best to transition it, and everyone agrees. And, and in that situation where everyone agrees is that we are going to sell it and, and the other generation moves on in a different fashion. Sometimes it works the other way where there's a thought of selling it. And as the, the process goes on, the secondary says, no, 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 I, I, no, I think I do want this. So I've, I've seen the, the path of planning develop the, the, the seeds for the ultimate result. And it's not always what uh, the businesses uh, think of. And I've seen it work out very well in uh, both ways, um, numerous times. We, sorry, we, we have a client that I'm very proud of. Um, actually, I went to school with them and um, talk about communication. You know, the 
the younger generation wanted to know where they stood, what was, what was the succession plan, all that kind of stuff. And communication wasn't really well between the older generation and the younger generation. So having a third party sometimes, they kind of talked through the third party. So that helped. And um, to their success, they were at one time, 20 years ago, they were a 12-man um, small manufacturing company. And today there are over 70 people. And there was a plan in place who, whose role was what? Um, the two brothers, one is more of a salesperson, operational guy. The other one is more of an engineer. Um, and because of their succession planning and, and their clear defined duties, they were able to take this company and scale it. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the fact that it was them trying to find out where they stood with the family business. And it wasn't happening because the parents didn't really want to talk about it. And having um, a professional involved with that helped facilitate the transfer and transition of the Barrett. So, you know, that's one success story. And there are a number of other ones similar to that. We've been working with a <clears throat> company in Glastonbury. It started with nine employees. They're up to about 120. They started probably around $8 million. And this is over a 13-year period of time. They're now up to over $100 million. Wow. And it's run by a family. Um, the entire family is in the business, except for one daughter who went off to college and then went off to grad school. And then there was an intention to have this person work in the industry, but in a different kind of company in the industry. And she was going to come back to the business after working in this outside firm for about two years. Well, she keeps getting promoted. <laughs> so it's an opportunity for her to keep learning about the industry and really the state-of-the-art aspects of the industry. Unfortunately, the parents are young enough, they can stay in the business for a while longer. She could come back if she had to, but there's a good chance she'll be working outside the business for another 10 years before she comes back and takes it over. But the family's done a beautiful job developing both of their children um, and putting them in the right places. One of our manufacturing uh, company customers has a very similar situation where uh, the son went off to uh, Chicago and worked for a consulting firm and learned an enormous amount about efficiency and productivity and process improvement and is now bringing back that 10 or 15 years of knowledge to the company here in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, the father who owns the company is just uh, delighted to have his son both in the business but also bringing a wealth of knowledge that he acquired through uh, working outside of the company for a period of time. So just, just to your point, fantastic. With, with family-owned businesses, I like to see the next generation work outside the business and work for two different kinds of companies, one where it's well-managed so they can experience being an employee and being in a well-managed company, and then work in a company that's not well-managed. Mm. So, so you can experience that. Because once you go back into the family business, you're a family member now, and that makes you a different kind of an employee. I would highly recommend this. I really would. Working and outside I've seen of the family it. business? I do. I think it's important. I think that's one of those things when you develop a plan of, um, I have a son in college right now, and even if he were to want to step in immediately after college, I would not, not only would I not suggest it, I just wouldn't agree to it. And I think that not only does that help the family member that enters back into the business, but they should be bringing some additional experience. 
because they're going to come in generally in a different role. So it would be most helpful to do that. And there's an appreciation level of you. When you work somewhere else, I had that opportunity a couple of different times working in other companies. So I had a different frame of reference. So when I came into the business uh, this last time, I just had a whole different view and it was really helpful. And I can see the difference in family members, the ones that have come in without experiencing outside employment and the ones that have come in with, and it is a much different scenario. And especially with all of the changes that are going on, it's not coming into a family business and running it same as, same as, same old anymore. It's got to be something new and different. Absolutely. I mean, innovation is so important in any business. I mean, you talk about any business, but specific to family business, if you want to continue to transition this business, it's going to have to evolve. And sometimes it goes in a completely different direction, one that you don't expect. You know, in technology now, you need to have a lot of expertise you may not have had in the past. There's some additional requirements now to keep businesses relevant. So our conversation today has really been about any company that is family-owned, privately-owned mm -hmm. business, uh, but specifically around manufacturing companies. You know, Sal, here in Connecticut, uh, as manufacturing is growing in Connecticut quite well, are you seeing anything in terms of transition and succession with manufacturing companies that uh, we haven't touched on here today? Um, I'm seeing a lot of buying and selling of manufacturing businesses. Um, the manufacturing industry right now is, is very hot. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of commercial. There's a lot of private work, government work. Connecticut has a really deep history of manufacturing. And, and in Connecticut, because of those companies like Colts and Pratt Whitney, they spurred a lot of vendors who are subcontractors. And these companies are growing pretty rapidly. Um, they can't find employees. Their, their, their competitive bids are much more profitable now because the lack of vendors out there. Um, so it's a good time to be a manufacturer in Connecticut. Um, and not only that, but Connecticut, to its credit, is trying to make it a manufacturing business-friendly environment. In manufacturing, equipment costs $100, $200, $400 million piece of equipment. There is no property tax. There is exemptions for sales tax. If, you, if, if your space has a certain number of square footage of manufacturing space, there is no sales tax on your utilities. So Connecticut has uh, done a lot to try to keep manufacturing at the highest level, and not to mention the skill level in Connecticut for manufacturing is pretty high. So um, companies have left the state and have come back because of the skill level. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. Maybe to wrap it up, the four of you actually are all resources uh, in, in this conversation around how to help business owners transition their company, how to build a succession plan within a company, uh, family-owned or otherwise. And I was wondering if you could all maybe just touch on or summarize some of the uh, the resources that are important to any business owner who's thinking about transitioning to the next generation or selling their business or uh, finding the succession plan. Obviously, the advisors uh, are important and, and their resources uh, with regard to their own expertise, but more importantly, their resources to programs that may be out there that may assist them in, in this transition, whether it be a financial uh, assistance that they may need, support, networking groups within their industry or associations. So if Sal has a, a client, that client, in speaking to Sal, uh, may be able to benefit from some of the knowledge and, and experience that he would have with other clients that are involved in various areas. 
with regard to finances, which are an important part of the, the transition within a family or a, a sale uh, or purchase, the, the finances are important and there's various organizations. Department of Community and Economic Development uh, in the state is very helpful and has been helpful to small businesses, small business administration. Banks, uh, obviously, uh, provide those resources uh, that are necessary. I find that um, for businesses and business owners that are working in their business every day, that peer-to-peer forum groups, whether it's a YPO or an EO or some kind of a, a forum group where people with similar issues and are at the same stage in their business can share their perspectives, share their ideas, their challenges, and also find out what other people are doing. So that kind of confidential, non-competing peer-to-peer group is a very important resource for people. I would agree with Pam. Um, I think there's a lot of good resources out there for business. And it's not just for the the technical side of a business, you know, uh, should I buy or sell or add another part of my business? But a lot of these associations are helping you create business culture for your business or telling you what they're doing that's successful in their business. But that's a good way to develop your leaders to help you transition. If you have uh, someone in a family member in the business, you want them to be the, the next president. It's good for them to be out there on a pair-to-pair and just see what other companies are doing and doing the same type of thing. Um, and obviously, I'm a big fan of developing a good uh, professional team around you that you trust and develop, um, a, a good banker who knows your industry really well, your attorneys, your accountants, and not only just the good times, for the bad times. So, you know, having them knowledgeable about your business and knowing it might be temporary or it could be the, the, the economy or something as opposed to panicking and saying, hey, you know, the banker saying, hey, look, you had a loss last year. We're going to have to find another, another banker. Um, but somebody who understands the business and, and help them. I would agree. I mean, all of these things are great resources in a formal sense. I, I really believe that you do need to associate yourself with groups that make sense to your business and to what your needs are. So if it's a local chamber of commerce, that's, you know, a great start. Some people, you just have to get involved. And anytime there's an opportunity to be involved, I, I generally try to say yes. I know our UConn Family Business Program, along with other family business programs in the state, are also great resources. Of course, you know, we go back to all of those basics, right? You, you have your banking, you have your accounting, you have your lawyer, but also just talk to other people and ask good questions and try to get some resources that you might not know about. The state of Connecticut has been extremely helpful to us. I recently was able to get a large grant for manufacturing. Manufacturing in Connecticut is very strong. It's very supported. And I think that people don't always know because if you're just working in your business and you're not working on your business or outside of your business and you don't take that time, and that's a generational thing also that we didn't really talk about. Within generations, a lot of times it's just showing up, right? You show up, you put in all those hours and you work day to day. Well, how do you know about all those resources that are out there? You know, recently with this grant, someone recently at at our meeting said, well, how did you hear about it? Because I stepped out of the business for the day and I went to, um, you know, CBIA. There's a lot of organizations that can be extremely helpful. And these are things that are important because financing 
especially with grants and all of those kind of things, can be very important to growth. It's ways of financing different opportunities. So I say step out of the box. Get outside of what you do day to day. Take some time out of the office and meet different groups of people that speak to what you're doing and that can be helpful. I agree with Capri. Um, All our businesses, whether it's accounting, the manufacturing, the attorneys, um, the consulting businesses, they're changing dramatically from one year to the next. And as Capri says, working on the business instead of just being in the business, you know, some of these peer-to-peer groups, business organizations is a great resource. I would highly recommend doing that and stepping out of the business, as Capri said. Thank you all very much for sharing your perspectives, your experiences, and your wisdom in this very important topic for privately owned businesses uh, and family owned businesses in particular on transition and succession. I think you've touched on so many important uh, items, but a few that come to mind are building your advisor team and having your advisor team in place as you're thinking about and, and, and approaching a transition or succession plan. Uh, having a plan and planning ahead and being prepared to pursue whatever path is the right path given your employee base and the interests of the next generation uh, in your business and knowing what it takes to make the business successful in the long run and, and being honest about matching strengths with roles. And finally, I think a common theme throughout this has been communication, communication, communication. Each of you has uh, encouraged uh, folks who are thinking about transition and succession that communication is key and a core. So I want to thank you again all very much for uh, being part of this episode of Manufacturing Matters and look forward to uh, continuing forward. 